Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. The featured new release this week is Driving Rain by me, T.G. Wolf. Sophie de Musa had plans. Finish college, go to med school, save the world. She never planned to be in a hospital bed, in a coma after ingesting too many pills. The homicide detective standing over her didn't plan to be there either. After all, she wasn't dead. Detective Jesus de la Cruz was ready to turn away from the sad story of a suicide attempt. When his AA sponsor, Dr. Oscar Bollier, pressed, Cruz begrudgingly agreed to investigate. It should have been an open and shut case. Except, if it was suicide, why were there two different 911 calls? As Cruz digs into the weeks and months before Sophie's hospitalization, he unearths a twisted knot of reality and perception. A sex scandal, a jilted lover, a callous director, a rainmaker, and a quid pro quo all made decisions and took actions that affected Sophie's life. But did one of them try to kill her? The facts have Cruz questioning if there's such a thing as an innocent man. Driving Rain by T.G. Wolf is now available through Down and Out's website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all your favorite independent booksellers. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no fakes, no breaks, no retakes, unless it's really bad and then he makes me start over. It's still allergy season here in Northeast Indiana, so if you hear a prolonged period of piano playing, just enjoy it and appreciate that I have a mute button on my mic. This is season one. This season comes from my book, Widow's Run, which was published in 2019 by Down and Out Books. If you love clever, sharp-edged mysteries and thrillers, check out Down and Out on the web. Like the other episodes, today's builds from the previous. You have to listen in order to make sense of the story. Start with the episode called What a Lovely Corpse You Have and catch up to us from there. We'll be here for you. We've listed a cast of characters in the show notes to help keep track of the players. To recap, our hero, Diamond, has faked her death, burying the mainstream suburban professional she was to resurrect her CIA cover. Why? She needs to do what the police won't, investigate her husband's death. In the last episode, Diamond and her Italian guide, Carlo Giancarlo, raided the killer's safe deposit box, only to be caught in the middle of a bank robbery. They make their escape on a scooter with more hype than horsepower. We pick up this week as Diamond and Carlo race to a dark dead end. Today's story is about creating justice, making a home, and watching your back. This is episode 9. Welcome to the dark side. We have cookies. On a 
rooftop terrace, among potted lemon trees and flowering vines, we sorted through the 20 pounds we had liberated from the bank box. Carlo drew the jewelry to one side. The watches and had familiar names like Rolex and Shinola. Rings and necklaces tended to be big and chunky, and I'd give you 10 to 1 odds that none of the gems were paste. I know a man who deals in jewelry. He pays top euro, Carlo said. I salvaged a dagger from his collection. I'm keeping this one. It was well balanced, made for a woman's hand. The tarnished silver handle emphasized the color and texture of the embedded jewels. A wicked blade was hidden beneath the scarab. The craftsmanship of the knife rivaled some I'd seen in collections. This was nobody's toy. Carlo turned over a banded stack of euros and there it was, a small red leather notebook. Oh, I wanted it. Oh, I wanted it. But Hugo Franzetti, the man who was a thief, a blackmailer, and my husband's killer, he would have written in Italian. I swear the first thing I'm going to do when I get home is fucking sign up for a Rosetta Stone and learn Italian. Can you find Gabrielle in all of that? I hung over Carlo's shoulders, willing the words to arrange themselves into something I'd understand. Carlo thumbed through the pages and then stopped abruptly. His index figure with a gnawed-off nail pointed to an entry. He was to pay 14,000 euros, four up front, ten after that. We only found two in the car, Carlo said. I pointed to another line. What is that there? Is that a name? Carlo frowned and he called his buddy over. He showed him the scribble. The mechanic who had opened the graffiti-covered roll-up door to event our premature death, well, he studied the entry. Cristaniemo? Yeah, it didn't do anything for me either. Who is Cristaniemo and what is the last name? It's not a who, the mechanic said. It's a what? A flower. I fell heavily in my chair. Was it really too much to ask for a blackmailer and killer just to write out the name of his client? What was the need for all this cloak and dagger shit? All I needed was a name. Joe Blow, Eric Campbell, Buford Winston. Just give me a name and I will get on with my life and his death. My phone signaled a text. Ian Black was returning my call. A few swipes of the screen and voila. What do you know about flowers? I asked. A guy buys them when he fucks up? Is this what you called about? It took me 20 minutes to answer his question. What is this, Diamond? A honey-do list? Just get it done, Ian. Her name is Valentina Rossifiori. R-O-S-S-I-F-I-O-R-I. That's a mouthful. What date do you want on the marriage certificate? I picked a date a year before Hugo died, making Valentina, air quotes, a respectable woman. The concept was ridiculous, as if a piece of paper could define a woman. Valentina made herself respectable by working her butt off to create a life out of what could have been an atrocity. But appearances mattered. It was my mother's credo and bile colded my tongue when I thought about it, but she's right. Uh, you'll remember her from my funeral and the part she played? Society, like Mommy Dearest, put appearance above substance. With the swipe of Ian's magic pen, the, tails, the scales would be tipped to balanced. A single mother in any country would never have it easy, but I took some pleasure helping her show what real strength was.
put me on speaker, Ian said. I need to talk to Carlo. Carlo had faded to the corner of the small courtyard, talking animatedly to his buddy, the mechanic. Carlo, come on over. Ian wants you. Carlo jogged fluidly across the open space to lean in close to the phone. Ciao, uncle. Uncle? The classically handsome Carlo had about as much in common with the very ordinary Ian Black as the statue of David had with Plato. You've been keeping secrets, Ian. Carlo grinned and I saw it. The family resemblance, it was in the smart-ass smirk. He also failed to, t to mention I would be working with the Queen of Diamonds, Carlo said. Ian huffed like a horse, dismissing both of us. Carlo, we're going to need some help getting this marriage certificate filed. Does that priest in Scarparia still owe you a favor? See, si, Carlo said. Send me the documents. I will take care of it. Now for the money. I laid out the cash that would be split. Ian and Carlo were compensated for their troubles. Carlos kept the jewels as a bonus. Ian would set up an account for Dixon and seed it with 10000 Carlo would connect Valentina with Mama Fr Franzetti, providing more than enough money to fix that roof. Sooner or later, Hugo has to be discovered, Carlos said. It would help with the social benefits. For a fraction of a second, I almost regretted spray-painting Hugo with bullets. Almost. Take care of it yourself, Carlo. I'll kick in an extra 10K. I need to get home. I lost a day. How? Well, it went something like this. Struck by lightning? Seriously? The Italian booking agent with the perfectly made-up face looked put out on my behalf. These things happen, signora. The plane has to be completely inspected and tested before your flight can leave. Two hours, maybe more, maybe less. Your connection is the problem. Oh, God damned me. Again. First Hugo was dad and now lightning. It's like she's purposely trying to stop me from solving Gabrielle's murder. Well, fuck that. Rebook me, I told the agent. Just a moment, signora. Polished nails clicked on the keyboard. Roma to Atlanta. No, Scoozy is full. Okay, here's another. Roma to Amsterdam to Minneapolis to Baltimore. Yeah, don't you have one that goes Rome to Atlanta to London to New York? She plucked her brows, furrowed them. No, Signora, that, that would not make sense. It makes as much sense as sending me to Minneapolis to get to Baltimore. The passion pink lips puckered, ignoring my suggestion. Your arrival would be 2355 local time. With the six-hour time difference between Rome and Eastern Daylight Time, I would be getting home 23 hours after I left the hotel this morning, and it would still be today. If you're willing to do a layover, no, 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 book me through Minneapolis. See, si, Signora, this, this will just take a moment. You betcha. By the time the taxi dropped me in front of my building, my ass had rug burn from being dragged across five miles of airport terminals. After endless hours of purified, reconstituted, dehumidified air, my eyelids were sandpaper rubbing over eggshells. I stepped into the glowing light of an entryway and raised my arm for protection from the light, hissing like a vampire from the old black and white movie. Inside my apartment, the night was dark and the air refreshingly humid and five-finger death punch beat on the walls. What the hell? Most of this building is occupied by seniors, by choice. 
my choice. The bass thumping on my frontal lobe belonged to somebody who didn't belong here. I stalked through my apartment, emptied as expected. Slamming open the kitchen door, I stalked through the rooms of my office. Nobody, just lots of heavy guitar. Where was it coming from? The loudest noise was in the hallway connecting my apartment and my office. The sound ramped up a few decibels when I opened the rear door. The apartment sharing the back landing, <coughs> excuse me, the vacant apartment sharing the back landing was lit up like a Christmas tree and thumping like a nest of rabbits. Where was my gun? I'm going to shoot the stereo and then I'm going to shoot the dumbass playing it. I reverse course, aiming for my kitchen and my utensils drawer. Diamond! Andrew Dixon stood on the black iron porch in bare feet, sweatpants, and a t-shirt that was homage to the noise beating on my head. A wide, goofy smile filled his face as he bounced from one foot to the other. You're home! I am. What are you doing here? I thought you said you found a place. I did! Here! He pointed to the lit window. That's my place. Well, yeah, but, you know, you weren't using it, and I needed a place, and this was close to your place. Yeah, so? The cabin pressure in my head suddenly dropped. Did it ever occur to you that I wanted it empty? Long pause. Why would you want it empty? Shorter pause. You want to see what I've done? Dick's had those expectant puppy dog eyes, and if he had a tail, it would have been going like a propeller. Crap. Why couldn't I be a cat person? dropped my head in exhaustion. Giving in would get me to bed sooner than arguing. Fine, Dix. Let me see what you did. Turn the music down. It's been a long-ass day. The apartments on this side of the building had a bedroom, a kitchen, a bath, and then one everything-else room. Dix furnished the space with an assortment of furniture. Where did you get all of this? Is that my kitchen chair? I was just borrowing it till you got back. Here, he handed me the chair, shook my head and walked on. The living room was set with the computer equipment we had salvaged from his father's house. Under the front window was a battered desk I'd seen before. Did you go back to your dad's house? He shrugged, nonchalant, just to get a few things. He was at work and didn't see me. He'd done all right, making a home out of odds and ends. I turned to him and found him standing in the middle of it, shifting his weight side to side as though he was going to get graded on the result. Something in his face reminded me of Valentina and the home she'd carved out for herself. This is nice, Dix. You did good. I kid you not, he beamed. So I can stay, he asked. Then he started negotiating. I'll keep the music down, you know, when you're here, and I'll, I'll, I'll watch your apartments when you're gone. Behind those sharp eyes, his brain worked overtime to find just the right character to get me to say yes. It'll be faster to work together if I'm close and enough, Dixon, enough. You can stay. He grinned again and slapped his hands on his sides. He was going to hug me. Maybe. Almost. Do, do you want to see what I found on Doc? Oh, you're, you're probably tired. Tired and stiff and so damn sick of being awake, but it was going to be some time before I could wind down enough to sleep. I do want to see what you found, but I need a few minutes to... Shower? He suggested, wrinkling his nose. I pinned him with a laser-sharp glare. Are you saying I need one? He blinked rapidly. Um, no. He defied my glare, leaning in and stiffing. Well, maybe. Kinda. Yeah. 
Stop, fine. I'll go shower. Turn the music down. This is almost a nice neighborhood. Now I am of the opinion that the single greatest invention of modern society is the hot shower. God bless the men who pumped water into houses and those who thought to brought flame to it and the brilliant SOB who put it all together. I nearly wept as the hot water washed the miles away. I dressed, refusing to wear underwear. The body can only endure so much. Still, I had a 17-year-old in my house, so I went with ambiguous baggy sweats and a hoodie. I emerged into my kitchen to find a sandwich, a bag of chips, and a glass of milk with a note. I drank half the milk as I read. Meet me in the media room. Media room? Since when do I have one of those? I balanced the glass on the plate, grabbed the chips, and went to find my media room. In my work apartment, heretofore referred to as my office, the dining room had been transformed into, well, a media room. Two 60-inch screens were mounted to the bare wall, one above the other. Wires bound with black ties hung inconspicuously, disappearing behind a computer tower. Where did I get the monitors? I sank into one of three plush seats. The material moved under me, kind of molding to my shape. It wasn't a chair. It was the mother of all beanbags, like on steroids and with the beer chaser. Dix, where did these, where did these whatever you call it come from? Dix retrieved a keyboard from a table with enough dents to have fallen down a dozen flights of stairs. He dropped into the chair next to me. Internet, express delivery. He stared at me with a little half smile like Mona Lisa. He was weirding me out. What? I asked. He shrugged again. Glad you're home. Yeah, well, me too. Thanks for the sandwich. You want a chip? I tilted the bag his way. Definitely. So here's what I found. He dug into the bag with one hand and typed nimbly with the other. Doc and Buford guy had emailed a lot. He opened a fi file with titles of over 200 emails. So what I got out of it was Doc invented something, some kind of seed, and Doc wanted to give the seeds away. But Buford thought it was a better idea to sell the seeds and use the money to invest in research. Yeah, Gabrielle's project, I explained, was based on genetically modified variation of quinoa being capable of growing in very arid climates. He was working on the food shortage problem, trying to save populations. Buford, on the other hand, wanted the seeds to line his fat pockets. Dixon frowned. Are you sure? I nodded. It was in Gabriel's journal, notes on his progress with the seeds of different plants. He focused on crops high in protein to balance the diet. Buford and his Ag Now lobby were sponsors of his grant and just expected Gabriel to turn over all the resulting plants to him. Buford is just in it for the money. Dixon looked between me and the screens. You think? Trust me, I said. The only best interest Buford cares about begins with a dollar sign. Dix brought up a picture of Buford at some golf outing. His full face was lit with laughter, his cheeks red and rosy from the afternoon sun. The argyle pattern of the golf shirt stretched over a hard belly. Have you met him, Dixon asked. I finished my milk, wiped my mouth. No, but I heard about him. He brought out the Russian and Gabriel. I'm going to meet him, though, very soon. What else do you have for me? 
Those long, lanky fingers tap-danced over the keyboard. The bulk of Buford Vin Winston disappeared, and presto, the petite Julie Lou appeared. Dr. Queely Lou received her PhD in biology when she was 24. I guess that's young, Dick said, butchering the woman's name. It is, I said. Most people are 22, 23 when they finish their bachelor's degree. A master's and a PhD can add, you know, four or five more years. Gabrielle said she had book smarts. She was one of the hardest working scientists he had. What did you find on her? Dixon hit one page, maximizing another. In high school, she was winner up for the Stockholm Junior Water Prize. I found an article on it. The winner, a, a kid from Germany, he fell down the stairs in a hotel and broke some of the bones in his neck. I googled Queely, he said, tripping over the name again. She Americanizes it to Julie, I said. Oh, thanks. That's way easier to say. So I googled Julie and found a bunch of articles. She's won all kinds of prizes and awards. There was one in the school newspaper saying she took over Doc's project. I set the empty plate and glass aside and gave the bag of chips to Dix. This oversized chair was just kind of hugging my body, like I didn't even have to hold my head up, just my eyelids. She was Gabrielle's assistant. I heard her name nearly every day. He said she was good, but she'd never be great. He felt that her work lacked a purpose, you know? Dixon's young eyes met mine. <laughs> no, no idea. It's like the difference between doing something you have to do and something you want to do. Oh, like how I fall asleep writing a paper for Mrs. McGinnis, but I can stay up all night hacking into Doc's emails? I narrowed my gaze. How exactly did we get these monitors and chairs? Jessica Fielding, feature writer for I Ate Some Pie magazine, she had a lunch meeting set to interview Julie Liu for a series on the top 30 scientists under 30. I took special care selecting Jessica's attire to ensure that Julie only saw Jessica. Julie and I had met twice. The first year Gabrielle and I were together, he wanted me to come to the department holiday potluck. Julie was finishing her first semester as a full-time employee. We were introduced, but we didn't socialize. She was more interested in the department chair than her supervisor's girlfriend. When she came to Gabrielle's funeral, I remember her being there, but she was just one of the parade of faces. If she said something to me, I'd long ago forgotten it. I know, I'm taking a big risk going myself. I wouldn't be stupid enough to count on her not remembering me. This time, I had blonde hair, and my eyes, you know, they can always give me away. So what I did was, I put contacts in. Brown, shit brown, and voila. Again, red hair wig. I could have been Carlo's sister, younger sister, of course. I dressed in a black suit, professional, understated, unremarkable, sensible shoes. I was dressing to gush over a woman. It wouldn't do to outdress her. I sat in the back corner of a trendy restaurant, paying extra for the table with the view of the entire dining room. With 20 minutes until the appointed time, I used a tablet to reread the material Dixon pulled together. Kid had good instincts. Give him a few years to get past puberty and he had real potential. He had dumped the years of emails between Gabrielle and Julie to a single director and then sorted them into folders by topic. I had read through most of the project emails last night. Here's a synopsis. 
boring. Yeah, I fell asleep reading them. I finished this morning. It wasn't any less boring, but I read on a treadmill so I couldn't fall asleep. There wasn't a lot to work with. The messages to my husband were completely professional. His were often less professional, more conversational. Hers never were. Each one began the same way. Dear Professor Rubchinsky, Ms. Fielding, it didn't matter if she was asking for a day off or announcing the results of months-long analysis. There was one exception. Miss Fielding. A folder Dick's called Crybaby. He read them right. The notes were an eclectic collection of polite but pointed complaints, documentations of injustices, and blatant ladder climbing. Excuse me, are you Jessica Fielding? A small framed Asian woman with a round face peered at me through equally round spectacles. Damn it. How long has she been standing there? Dr. Liu, I jumped to my feet. Thank you so much for meeting me. I was just reviewing my background research. You've led such a fascinating life, accomplished so much at such a young age. She tossed her hair over her shoulder, preening under my attention. Please sit. Did you have any trouble finding the restaurant? Julie Liu melted into a vinyl seat rubbing against the arched back into a settled position, slightly askew to the table. This restaurant is well known to everyone as the university president frequently dines here. The chit-chat began. We ordered lunch and I started the interview. Julie straightened her body, folded her hands on the table and leaned toward me. There was no nonsense in her body language. I quickly learned two things. One, Julie Liu is a name dropper. Proof of her excellence was based on who she had beaten, outsmarted, and those who coveted her. Two, Julie Liu did not like to come in second. Your magazine is naming the top 30 scientists? I played the role as the engaging reporter. Yes, this is our 25th year. We have five Nobel laureates as our alumni, and our past leaders are at leading institutions on five continents. The competition is unparalleled. Nominated scientists go through a rigorous peer review. Who nominated me? Julie asked. Her chin lifted, her eyes sparkling. I'm afraid I don't know. I just conduct the interviews on the... Well, I'm not supposed to tell anyone this, but I conduct the interviews on the top five finalists. I lean back, dragging the line and drawing her in. We're interested in the story behind the scientist. You know, something our readers can really sink their teeth into. Am I the top scientist? Julie took the bait and the hook lodged in her ambitious jaws. I couldn't tell you even if I knew, but I did lean forward in conspiracy. I will tell you the stories count. Two years ago, before I worked here, I heard the top candidate was demoted to number four because he hadn't attended his grandmother's funeral. Everybody wants compassionate science. Her head nodded. My supervisor died a year ago. Julie saved me the trouble of tactfully steering the conversation to Rome. Dr. Gabriel Ruchinsky, I was with him when he died. Gasp, who knew? I'm so sorry, what happened? Julie began the story with how excited she was to present her research on an international stage. She described how nervous she was, she's in the right dress for the reception. So many people would be there, she said, people who could make or break a reputation. Dr. Rubchinsky was late. He knew so many people and he promised to introduce me. So I called to his room and he came down immediately. The trained interrogator in me wondered why she chose to start the story there. 
It was nearly an hour before Gabrielle would die on the street alone. Julie never mentioned Ilsa Duma whatever. Prefecture Ruchinsky, he bought me a glass of wine and he introduced me as he promised. I hope you can understand, there were no younger scientists there. Department chairs from MIT and Stanford, Case Western Reserve and Jabbok Hopkins, and everywhere else were in attendance. I had presented a paper that afternoon and all were congratulating me on my work. Okay, it's getting a little bit thick in here. So thick it wouldn't have shocked me if she claimed she walked on water. Now, the way I remember it, Gabrielle had three papers accepted to the conference. Of course, Julie's name was on those papers. The second name. She presented one of them sharing the load and the credit. It was a special night, she said. An important night. My head was hurting. Professor Rubchinsky noticed, and there was a pharmacy across the street, and he offered to buy me medicine. I accepted, and... and... when he crossed the street... The waterworks started, but I was too dumbfounded to give the expected reaction. When she sobbed a little harder, I picked up the cue. Oh, Dr. Lou, how, how horrible. It was my fault. She cried out, her confession turning heads of the neighboring tables. Oh, no, no, you can't blame yourself, I said, meaning it. You couldn't know. I stopped short of saying that death waited for my husband. Julie blotted her eyes, wet with tears. I know, yes I know, but it does no good. Instead, I have dedicated this year to Professor Rubchinsky. I tell the graduate students that we are not just working to feed the world, we are fulfilling a great man's legacy. Yes, it will be my name on the new varietal, but it will be Professor Rubchinsky's blood in it. First, gross. Second, narcissistic much. And third, Damn straight, it's his legacy. She was warping it to win a prize that only exists on a faked website. Our lunches arrived, and Julie continued to talk unprompted. A picture emerged of a bright child, one pushed by parents and culture to achieve the highest levels of academic success. Where the scientists had thrived, the woman seemed to go unnoticed. When asked about life outside of the laboratory, she floundered. She stammered, pretended to struggle with words, and, and then her face glowed like a light bulb had just turned on. I have been learning golf. Many famous scientists play golf for relaxation. And of course, there is the business side. Business plus golf equated a big red face. You wouldn't happen to know Buford Winston, would you? Oh, her face shut down tighter than a door on a submarine. Yes, I have met him. Julie definitely did not like Buford. My guess was she inherited the animosity between Buford and Gabrielle just like she inherited the grant. His act now is your grant sponsor, I understand. Oh, Chatty Cathy had run out of string. Ag now provides money for a large number of research grants. She made busy eating her beef tenderloin medallions. Have you golfed with him? She shook her head, going nonverbal now. Have you seen him recently? Julie primly set her fork down and folded her hands on the table. Is Buford Winston the top scientist under 30, or am I? Well, having been put in my place, I duly look submissive. You are, doctor. Mr. Winston is a top name in ag. His name opens doors. I thought if you and he were friendly, it might be a point of interest to the review panel. Well, her pointed little nose went up, held, and then descended. I'd been forgiven. I have not golfed with Mr. Winston yet, 
but when we do, there will be much conversation. I asked her again about Rome, and the story changed a little bit. Funny how those lies get all tangled together. I specifically asked about Francisco Thelen. It must have been horrible, two tragic losses in the same day. Julie selected a cracker from the basket and began breaking off tiny pieces. I had only met him. He and Professor Rubczynski were great friends. They teased each other. Professor Thelen taunted about Professor's wife. She is very beautiful and Professor Thelen said the Professor would have solved his little dilemma had he not been distracted. Had Professor Thelen met Professor Rubczynski's wife? Because if she, I mean, I did, it was news to me. He seemed to know about her, Julie said. The professor said Professor Thelen should have slowed global warming if he wasn't so cheap about paying. It was harsh, but I know it was true. I saw Professor Thelen finish the drink that Professor Rubczynski had left untouched. Thelen had picked up Gabrielle's drink, the poisoned one. Penny-pinching dope punched his own ticket when he snatched the drink, and yet I had to thank him. If he hadn't, all the evidence would point to Gabrielle's death being an accident. Now something else bothered me. Lou hadn't been at the table when Gabrielle ran out. How did she see Thalen take his drink? Then something else occurred to me. Something so shockingly obvious, I stood up and gasped. There was a second suspect. Because if Hugo was driving the killer Bumblebee, who pushed Gabriel into traffic? I missed something. Is something wrong, Jessica? I blinked, bringing Julie's concerned face into focus and shockingly had an awareness of me standing in the crowded restaurant and making like the Statue of Liberty. I sat. I'm sorry, I just remembered another appointment, and I think I have what I need. I signaled the waitress, readied my credit card. I'm sorry, I just places to go, things to do. Already? So soon? Julie's eyes were wide with surprise. What about my story? Really, I have everything I need. The waitress set the bill on the table, and I shoved it in the card right back at her. Maybe you can come to my lab. Plant husbandry is fascinating. Your readers and the committee, I... She was grabbing at straws, so obviously hoping to keep me focused on her. I, I have propagated the last of Professor Rubczynski's plants, the ones he grafted last year. Sure, it gave me pause, but the only answer could be no. I needed to be in front of a monitor finding what I missed. I'll pull Carlo back in. How did we not see it? If Hugo was driving, somebody pushed him and poison the cocktail. Somebody who has paid the difference between the 4,000 euros in Hugo's book and the 2,000 that was in the trunk. Miss Fielding? Julie cocked her head as if I was a puzzle she was trying to solve. I am sorry, Dr. Lou, but I really do have to run. The words came out curtly, but not mean. I mean, not mean enough to make Julie look like I just stole her teddy bear. Take two. Just give me a few days to draft the story. If I have any questions or there are any gaps, I promise I will call you back. She pressed her lips together tightly and gave me a quick nod. I'm sure you will find my work is far above those at even more prestigious institutions. We walked through the restaurant together. Not friends, not even colleagues. There was an odd force at work. It felt like when you try to press together the same poles of a magnet, you know, you push the plus side of one to the plus side of another, they just, they just don't fit. 
I understood now what Gabriel had meant about Julian, why he couldn't put into words, English or Russian. On the sidewalk, I offered Julie a smile. Thank you again for your time, Dr. Liu. Hers was small and cold by comparison. You will call with follow-up questions. A statement, not a question. Of course, of course. We parted ways and nearly instantly I got a knot in my stomach. For a moment I thought it had been the chef's special talking back, but it was my gut instinct, the one responsible for telling me when trouble was too close for comfort. Slowing my breathing, I took a measure of the off-campus setting, an urban street lined with shops and restaurants below and, and apartments above. Younger people plugged into their phones, hurried under sagging backpacks to their next appointed rounds. Older people acted as obstacles to the faster moving crowd. And then there was a man sitting at the coffee shop, at a table, not reading his paper, not drinking his coffee. I stopped and followed his line of sight directly to Julie Liu. Damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it! I hurried back from where I came. Dr. Liu! Dr. Liu! I shouted her name, bringing lots of attention to the two of us. Men like our coffee guy thrived on discretion. Nothing kept them at play like the limelight. One last thing, doctor! Julie had started walking to me. The simple smile on her face told me she hadn't sensed she was being watched. You have thought of something additional? Yes, is your car nearby? I walked. Perfect, I'll drive you back to your office. This way. I threaded my arm through hers and led her down to the sidewalk. Have you had anything odd happen since that conference in Rome? She tried to slow, but I didn't let her. Odd? Like how? Oh, I don't know anything. Hang-ups, feelings like you're being watched, misplacing things. This time she did stop, her brows pressed together. Why are you asking this? A car trolled by with the driver fresh out of the school of hard knocks. His dark glasses didn't hide his appraising gaze. I read his lips. Got her. Move it! I pulled Julie, giving her no choice. She either was dragged or keeping up. I'm not a reporter. I'm an investigator, and there are at least two men following you. Me? She glanced over her shoulder, but finally kicked it into gear. Why? I suspect because of Gavriel Ruchinsky's research. It is my research. I have far surpassed anything he had achieved. How much have you shared with Buford Winston and Ag now, I asked. Nothing. Her words came faster, shorter as she hurried to keep up with the pace I set. He pressures over and over, but I tell him the work is not ready. We rounded a corner and I broke into a sprint. Run, now. We need to take advantage of the few minutes of cover. There, the white car is mine. Get in. I pressed the fob button, opening the doors for us. I hurried into the street and into the driver's door. Is that the man? From the passenger seat, Julie pointed to where the coffee shop guy stood on the corner searching hard for someone. Yep, recognize him? I started the car and backed up until my bumper kissed the car behind me. It gave me enough room to clear the, front, the car in front of me. Probably. Reminded me of Rome. No, I've never seen him. Her voice quivered as she gasped as the black Escalade burst past the coffee guide. Buckle up, I said. A brake came in traffic and we shot out of the tight spot, paint job intact. We raced past coffee shop guy in the opposite direction of the black Escalade. His gaze followed me, his marble face an open book. I resist flipping him off and got to work sweeping the scene in front of me, side to side, left mirror, windshield, 
rear view mirror, windshield, right mirror, repeat. Lots of black SUVs on the roads these days. Too damn many, too damn alike. I turned right and seconds later a black Escalade made the same turn. It ate up ground, growing larger than life in the mirror. Fortunately, I had a few more ponies under my hood. Choke on my performance engine exhaust, asshole. I put distance between us, but I needed a better plan. Nobody cleared the streets like in the movies. They let us race around the university. There were people and traffic lights and cars everywhere. The winner would be the one who thought fastest on their wheels. Which would be me, because I had a plan. A very good plan. I started to laugh. Oh, this, this was going to be priceless. Five pins dug into my arm. Why are you laughing? Are you an insane woman? Julie's face had gone past white to grayish green. One hand was dry needling my arm while the other had a death grip on the door. Trust me. I slowed as we approached the corner, rolled around the stop sign, and kept turning into a parking structure. Watch this. We both turned, watching the street through the rear window. Five seconds later, Cadillac Man barreled around the corner and he just blasted past us. Julie's gaze snapped to me. He's gone! She retracted her claws from my forearm. Wait for it! I hadn't gotten two words out when a siren blared and raced past. Her eyes widened in awe like maybe she thought I was psychic. Police station. It pays to know your neighborhood. I took a ticket to the lift entrance and we pulled into the parking structure. I found a nice spot on the roof and turned the engine off. It was time for a heart-to-heart -heart with Julie. I need to know everything about Buford Winston and Ag now. Yes, Buford Winston had been pressuring her for her work. He scared her with his yelling and screaming and threatening to pull her funding. She had given him some of Gabrielle's results last October. He called two weeks ago wanting more. She had problems in the lab ever since taking over. Equipment going missing, a break-in damaged the climate control system, a fungus breakout. Bad luck. Or was it? Find somewhere else to say. I started the engine and left the roof behind. Don't be alone, Julie, and definitely do not go into work alone until you hear from me. She pressed her hand to her throat. What? What are you going to do? What I do best. I don't know what to do. Her brown eyes glassed over again, stained with tears. Where can I stay? Well, that's it for this episode of Mysteries to Die For. In two weeks, we'll pick up with the story of the next chapter, Oh, Hell No. If you enjoyed our twist on storytelling, help spread the word by telling a friend or leaving a review. For less than the cost of Julie's Beef Tenderloin medallions, you can join our Body Bag Brigade to help show your support for our show. You'll receive bonus content as our thanks. Mysteries to Die For was written by T.G. Wolf. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Widow's Run was written by T.G. Wolf and published by Down and Out Books. Until next time, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Now let's open the French doors and join Jack in the piano room. I thought we weren't doing that. Thought we were doing a short one. Okay. I'll edit this part out then. You don't have to. We said we'd do it live. No retakes.
Hi, I'll edit it out. You'll edit it out. I'll edit it out. <laughs> that was a good episode, Jack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a busy one. Lots of things going on there. Yep. Most definitely. So at least we got Diamond finally got out of Italy, and it sounds like she's back on the trail. Finally, yeah. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the priest who was going to take care of the marriage certificate for Valentina, he uh, lives in a small town in Italy called Scar- Scarperia. When we were in Italy, when we stayed in Tuscany, we went there. I don't know if you remember, because it was a tiny little place we drove to on Sunday, just we were out exploring. And their claim to fame is they make knives, like going back to the 1500s. Wow. Do you remember that the uh, a castle had been turned into a knife museum? Yes, I definitely remember this, and you definitely didn't tell me about it right before going into this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh my goodness! See what children do—they ruin—they ruin your best storylines. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is definitely not already predecided that we were going to talk about this. <laughs> well, you had said that we didn't have anything to talk about, and I said, "Well, we could talk about Scarperia." Yeah, that's a. Great idea. Do you remember driving to the Leaning Tower of Pisa? I remember climbing up it. Yeah. Was it weird the way it was tilted? I was very afraid that I was going to slip off the stairs because they were all worn down to the point where it was basically a ramp. <laughs> That's exaggerating. It was not that worn down. It was pretty worn down. It was it was impressively worn down. And I think the thing that fascinated me was how the, the place where it was worn down on the step shifted along the step as you went from the left to the right side. yes <laughs> from the leaning to the not leaning <laughs> to the leaning to the not leaning mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was one angle that if you looked at it from it didn't look like it was leaning well yeah. i guess two one on each side mm-hmm. yeah and of course we took the generic picture of one of us is holding it up we did that it's not generic it's pretty generic we also did the ohio one Yes. With the leaning tower as the eye. Yes, the husband is a buckeye. And so, yes, we did the OHIO. Mm-hmm. So, what was the inspiration uh, there when you were doing um, Julie Liu's music? That was the only one today that I think was new, right? Um, there was Julie Liu. There was this one. <laughs> oh, yes. Karma Hates Me. Yeah, Karma Hates Me. You're going to have to... Write that out to a whole song, because now it's called Karma Hates Me. Yep, it's a, it's a pretty great song. But yeah, Julie Liu, um, I don't know how I came up with it. I think it was just this morning. It, it went like this. But it sounds fun, and it sounds like out of some song that... You know, some pianist that knows how to play the piano probably wrote. Just saying. <laughs> Give yourself enough credit. He probably I, does. I mean, I think what I like about that for the character is Julie definitely has a grand opinion of herself. <laughs> She's very full of herself, yes. She is. And the way you did that, as opposed to some of the other ones where you, where you um, play the chords as an arpeggio or you really stretch them out, when you actually played it as a chord the way you did, it has a, a much fuller fi- yeah. 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 And so that part definitely matched into the character very well. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so I think coming up here, 
maybe two more episodes, uh, we finally meet Buford Winston. Finally. And so much about him. Yeah, yeah. And so you're going to need to come up with a baseline for him. Oh, he's going to be great. I already got it. You see, Buford Winston, I feel like he's kind of got that angry fat guy from the, like, 1500s who's, like, ruling the factories. Yeah. Well, not the 1500s. Like, uh, the... Yeah, 1500s is way too 1800s? old. 1800s? Um, 1900s? Yes. The, uh, what was it, Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. the fat guy who ran all the factories, who owned a bunch, yeah. didn't actually run them. Yeah, that's Buford Winston. So, we're going to get some Oliver Twist theme songs coming up in here. Oh, very cool. Because, uh, yeah, the boss dude was really fat, just walking around everywhere, yelling yeah. at kids. Pretty great. I have to admit, I don't, I don't remember the story of Oliver Twist. I have to be honest, I didn't watch the movie. I watched like three episodes in World Studies because we were learning about the Industrial Revolution. Huh. Huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what that movie's about. Uh, I know it's about a boy, and uh, that's about it. And he asked the sir to have some more. Oh, that's the one? Uh-huh. Huh. Can I have some more, please? And, you know, if your father was down here, he'd, he'd be glaring at both of us because, uh, you know, he's an English and history person. So the fact that we both don't know Oliver Twist and we're fuzzy on the Industrial Revolution would just have him, like, his eyes rolling in the back of his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He'd love it. Uh-huh. <laughs> we know <laughs> other stuff. Yeah. Like electricity or something. I don't like know. Like arpeggios. Yes. <laughs> So next week we're back with a, a pretty cool episode called Oh Hell No. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're getting close to the end of the book. I think we have four or five more episodes to do. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I don't want to give anything away to anybody who hasn't read the book. But it's going to get fun. Hmm. Oh. Cool. I haven't read the book. <laughs> it's up in his bedroom. He just hasn't read it. No, I'm reading it as you guys. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, let's take us out for today. And where do you want to play? I'll do it play? on, on uh, Kueli Liu. <laughs> Let's call her Julie. But Kueli Liu is so much more fun. Uh, well, in some worlds. In my world. Take us out, Jack.